So, Renato, we've heard the audio tape, and it sounds pretty bad. Is this the smoking gun? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renato Miriati. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Lordy, there are tapes. Indeed. Now, here's the thing. I have to say, Ash, this is, they, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I think this tape is worth more than that uh, because I heard the word, I saw, read the words in the indictment. They're spelled out in the indictment. And it's way worse when you listen to it, isn't it? Than it, it read in the indictment. Yeah. So I'm, I, and I'm interested in, in unpacking this with you because when I read the indictment, it's like, Okay, this is like this definitely shows like state of mind. It undermines some of the defenses that he could put up. But um, in terms of like its probative value, like kind of affirmatively to to prove like an element, um, I don't know that it was clear. And it seems like with the with when you hear it though, when you hear the rustling and you hear the uh, reactions of the people around him, and you can kind of almost visualize like what he's doing. It seems like it is more than just state of mind or obliterating defenses. Yeah, it, it's there's a couple things in there that, and I and I have not, uh, Asha, since listening to this audio, I don't know a few hundred times uh, uh, between or whatever between you know being on Twitter or CNN different times talking about it. Um, I, I did not go back into the indictment and like compare like word for word, but a couple of things, I think he did include some like ellipses, you know, dot, dot, dot in the indictment to kind of focus on the parts that he thought were legally, he being Jack Smith thought were legally important. And I think actually that context matters here. In other words, like one thing that they do in this is they're like making fun of Hillary Clinton for allegedly mishandling classified, classified information while he is showing somebody else classified information. Like, it's like sort of bizarre, right? And then his tone, he's like... This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. secret. <laughs> this is secret information. But look, look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> she'd send it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. <laughs> and, you know, he said, he wanted to attack Iran and what? And he said, you did. Wow. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have deat less. Yeah. Uh, now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classic. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Which it goes to motive of why he's showing them and held on mm -hmm. to them in the first place. And then I'd say, you know, on top of all of that, I mean, one thing that was present in the indictment but it was just words are like the big rustling of papers, right? Is how they kind of describe it in the indictment. But when you actually 
listen to the whole thing in context. It sure sounds like he's got a document there and he's talking about that specific document and he's showing it to him and holding it up for him. While, it's like, look at this, right? This is what Millie prepared for me. And then that sound like like uh, what he's saying in yeah, that context? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like he's holding up a Time magazine, right? He's, oh, that's total BS. He's yeah, holding the idea up that he's doing that. something and it's not just that he's holding it up and saying, you know, like, look at this or, or whatever. Um, there's a there's a reaction from the people that he's talking to where you can, which conveys that they're seeing something that surprises them and kind of shocks them. And so you can kind of almost visualize a document that literally has top secret on the top because, you know, classification markings are always pre are prominently displayed on the top of the document. Um, I mean, that's kind of how I visualized it. You know, they would need... A, right. a corroborating witness to to verify that, um, but it it certainly doesn't seem like he's just waving around you know some paper that has a lot of text on it and saying that it's war plans for Iran and the other people are like you know amazed by that like there there's something there that they're reacting to. Right. It's not like he's holding up like yeah a clipping for the New York Times or something. I thought that was very bizarre. Uh, it's a very bizarre defense uh, and the sort of thing that is easily easily disproven um, if you interview the people there. Although, to be fair, they may be super Trumpers who are going to say anything, right? You have cat, you know. You, some of these some of these people are willing to say basically anything. Uh, to you think they'll Trump. lie for him? I mean, so Jack Smith would have it, he. I mean, they would have interviewed all the people that were there for that audio, right? You would think. Uh -huh. I, I don't know. I would assume. I would presume. I would presume that would be the careful thing to do, and I assume that they would. But you know, I, I, all I'm saying is that um, I, that's that would be my assumption. In an, or an ordinary case, I would practically guarantee that. I would assume these people are all going to say that they were like they saw some top secret document being held in front of them. But with Trump, Trump you never know. But yeah, the the fact that there's a number of people there makes it harder too, right? Because they all would have to tell the same lie and they're probably not going to risk doing that. Wait, can I, and can I stop for one second there? So, you know, he's, if we look at the content of this audio, let's stipulate that he's actually showing, you know, there's, he's waving around a, a top secret document that, and, and other people are able to see it. Um, Jack Smith is not charging Trump with dissemination like it's he's that's not something that he need he needs to prove that Trump right showed it or passed it to someone unauthorized um but are would it be fair to say that his cavalier attitude towards the classified information gets to the willfulness of the willful retention so that's that. Thank you, Asha, for really getting to the heart of the matter here. Okay. And because I think your comment um, is adjacent to or corresponds to an argument that we've been starting to see a lot on Twitter. It was also on television. Uh, for those of you who have been listening to other uh, lawyers talk about this, there's people concerned that maybe this document is, is not even admissible. Because the doc, the charges, as you point out, it's not dissemination of some document. It'd been Mitster. In fact, he wouldn't have venue 
to charge uh, dissemination of a document in Bedminster. The charges are these willful retentions of other documents, presumably not the attack plans uh, for Iran that were being held up, which have never been recovered as far as we know. And so is this even relevant for purposes of the federal rules of evidence? And so one pe- argument people are making, and there's there's something to this argument, but I, I think a lot less than is being let on, which is really something because usually usually uh the more like uh, usually uh it goes the other way people have all these explosive comments that are overblown Th- this is a little uh a little uh everyone else is being the sad panda here in this circumstance maybe it could be the happy panda uh, today um People are basically saying, look, they charge these 31 documents that he knows are NDI, he pre approve our NDI, National Defense Information. Essentially, this is a pre-classification era statute. So that's what matters under the Espionage Act. And this other document happened in New Jersey, is not, first of all, is not, he can't prove it's National Defense Information. So what he did in New Jersey has nothing to do with this, so therefore it's not admissible. And I think the way that's going to play out, and so it's like, and I'll give you an analogy. There are to, like a very basic federal crime that's charged all the time is bank robbery. It's like if you robbed these four banks, if I want to introduce the, the fact that you robbed a fifth bank, well, that that's like a really difficult thing to get in to evidence because it's like a whole other bad act that you've done. And that's how Trump's team would try to characterize this. Like they're trying to use this other bad thing he did up in New Jersey to prove his guilt. I think a lot of judges would say that this goes to his state of mind regarding, like you said, willfulness. It basically shows that during the exact same time period that he was retaining classified docs, he was very cavalier in his attitude towards that, towards keeping the classified docs, showing the classified docs to others and everything. It goes towards his state of mind. And they probably would let it in. But if you are doing this as sort of like if you're if the judge and this is Eileen Cannon or Aileen Cannon now that we're talking about, if she views this as sort of like a separate bad act that occurred in New Jersey, it's there are there is a more strenuous, like a higher bar for this to come in. The problem is, I mean, first of all, most judges, like I said, would just let it in, I think, in the front end. If but even let's just say that Aileen Cannon said, okay, we're keeping this out because this is not directly relevant to anything. It really puts Trump in a box, Trump's team in a box. Here's why. If what it, there's no question that this is directly relevant to rebut his defenses in the case. And so as soon if 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 they wanted to keep this out, if I was Jack Smith, I would um take that trade. It's like, okay, I'm happy. We'll, we'll keep it out. And then you throughout the entire trial can't say anything about declassification and moving your arm, you right. know, moving your hands and everything's declassified or any of this other BS that you've got. And as soon as you even hint at it, this document comes in. So I think that is a practical. And you can't claim that they were your personal records right. or None of that stuff because you knew better. You knew that, right? You knew right. that wasn't the case. So I think that that I think that that is a practical matter. It's never going to work out cleanly where this isn't in. As my and I think Jack Smith had the same analysis I did, which is why I put it in the indictment. I, I've written a lot of indictments in my life. Indictments in cases, at least I thought were high profile, or certainly there was very uh, sophisticated, rich adversaries on the other side. 
Um, and I was super careful not to put stuff in the indictment if I thought I wouldn't get in evidence because I knew the other side would be crowing to the jury, a closing argument about it. Hey, Mariotti said he was going to prove this. Look at this in the indictment. He didn't do it. And I, you know, th- th- that happens all the time. I've had fancy lawyers from you know, Wall Street law firms claim that I did that when I when that wasn't the case. They'll certainly do it if you if you don't put in a piece of evidence. And so I think Smith thinks he's going to get it in, and I and I could see why. So he's not charging him with having, you know, classified documents at Bedminster, but doesn't that, I'm just wondering if there's like a way of like, well, you know, he's, we we have someone who's testifying that he was, you know, had, he was waving around a classified document in Bedminster, which is not a skiff and he was not authorized to have it, which gets to the crime that he's being charged. Or is that too tenuous? I mean, I think... First of all, your point is, could he be charged in Bedminster? Maybe. I don't know what other evidence they have. I, I would have to think that. They would need that document, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they can't really prove what's on it. It's just the sort of thing like you would not usually want to charge that if you have a more solid case in Florida. And I would think they already would have. You know, already uh, people are starting, I hope, to see that like this idea that you're going to have a trial in twenty, you know, this year in 2023 is... In, becoming increasingly unlikely. I mean, we could talk about the, you know, the delays. You know, Walt Nauta has not even been arraigned yet. Um, yeah, you know, much less uh, have his lawyers go through clearance and this and that. Um, you know, the idea that he would try to slow things down by having a, to- you know, that would slow things down if he like waits a couple of months and then indicts in New Jersey, and you have two uh, yet another lawsuit about similar or another, excuse me, complaint, federal uh, indictment about. Um, you have another federal indictment about similar sorts of uh, crimes in another jurisdiction. I mean, he could, but it's just, uh, I just don't think that's likely to happen. So, but I think it's relevant to show Trump's state of mind. And I think that's why he included it in the indictment. Before we move on, I do want to, I one thing I do think is worth noting, because before, while you were off um, drinking wine, not eating gelato, but drinking wine in Italy, um, you know, Brian Greer and I talked about a lot last week about the Fox News interview. And oh, I just right. want everybody who is listening to understand a bit of a contrast between this. The Fox News video brought, you know, one thing that I really laid out for everyone is why Jack Smith probably won't even use the Fox interview. I mean, gener- I mean, he, he could do it. It's possible, um, but it would not be the typical prosecutor's playbook. The typical prosecutor's playbook is, I am not going to put on a video in which you state some of your defenses in it because I am going to force you to take the stand if you want to get that crap in front of the jury. I'm not going to like let you mm. I'm not going to let you put your defenses on through some video. Uh you're going to have to you're going to have to get cross-examined by me if you want to do it. This is totally different because there's nothing good for Trump on this recording. Right. Like literally nothing from beginning to end. Like the last words are him asking for a Coke after he's showing people uh, documents. Um, do you have an aide? He's like, man, this is a problem. I mean, there's just nothing good for him on this entire recording. If I was a prosecutor, I'd have no problem playing it because it's just completely incriminating. And that's why it's in the indictment. Yeah, and and I'm glad that you brought that up because I had some people on my Substack Zoom office hours asking, you know, people keep saying that Trump is, you know, when he does these interviews and says all these things and these defenses and, you know, uh, 
misquotes the Presidential Records Act or whatever, that he's trying to muddy the waters. But how would this evidence get in front of a jury um, unless, you know, Jack Smith brought it in or Trump testified? And I said, my understanding of the idea that he's trying to muddy the waters is that he is trying to confuse the court of public opinion in order to delegitimize any outcome that comes out of this trial and then possibly maybe taint a jury pool. Like, I don't think that the issue is that he is, tr- you know, trying to actually uh, plans to sway the jury with this kind of stuff. I agree with you that that's exactly what he's trying to do. I couldn't have said that better myself. I agree a hundred percent with your take on that is not unsurprisingly. I'd say separately from that, that, um, yeah, trial, good trial lawyers to criminal defense attorneys will find ways to get those, these ideas in front of the jury. And th- you may consider some of those methods improper or bending the rules or whatever, but that's just, it's like if you're watching an MMA fight, okay, it's just, it's not, you know, it is what it is. People kick each other, you know, I mean, it's just, or whatever they're doing. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a fight. And th- that's the same thing. Uh, uh, um, a, uh, a, a, a criminal trial is like a knife fight. You have to know when to be aggressive. You have to know when to maybe go up to the edge of the rules, just the reality of things. So, so defense attorneys are going to ask questions that'll talk about the presidential act, act throughout. They'll make arguments. They'll, they'll put in the opening and the closing arguments where they'll say, that's what he could have thought. That's what it could have been in his mind. They'll introduce that as an argument, not as evidence. And they'll do enough about that. They'll try to find various documents that they can or things that they can introduce, try to find ways of getting that in front of the jury without calling Trump. So they will get the idea in front of the jury, but it's going to have very little weight if the jury only hears about it through the attorneys because they're going to be like, what is this? Do you have to do with anything? If 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 there isn't like a video like that or Trump testifying, it's going to be really hard, which is why, by the way, I mean, that video uh, or that Fox News interview was not the first time Trump said crazy stuff like that about the Presidential Records Act. You don't see any of that in the indictment. You see stuff that Trump said previously about, you know, Hillary Clinton right. in the indictment. And you see this recording that we just heard uh, recently in the indictment. You don't see any of that stuff. Yeah. I do think that he's going to try to force his lawyers to make this Presidential Records Act argument. Oh, they will. I think that's the only defense he has left. And and I'm actually worried that Aileen Cannon is going to bite on it. Well, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, th- that I just would say for all of this, like, you know, when people are saying, too, it's like, I get this question, uh, you know, it's like, well, couldn't she exclude this evidence? I mean, she could do what she wants. And I mean, we've, I think you and I've talked about, right? I think this before you went on your trip, we yeah, talked she about can how, do really she bad can, things. Yeah, she could tank the whole case. So if that's what you're concerned about, it is what it is. But in, in a normal land, uh, that's going nowhere. Yeah, so there's 84 witnesses that the Department of Justice has asked to be placed under seal. Um, And that is the idea there that to not let Trump know who the witnesses are so he can't go intimidate and tamper with them. I I, I think that (laughs) I think I mean, his lawyers not only 
have the they can't they not only can tell him who the witnesses are that they have, they have the right to do it. I think the idea is they the GOJ wanted to put the witness list under seal because they didn't want the average like right wing nut job uh, attacker to know who they were and go like hunting them down. But I will just tell you this is very very unusual thing that DOJ is doing. You know, their usual tack on this case has been, hey, let's treat this like any other case. Like, we're ready for our speedy trial. We're ready to go. We're going to treat this like any other case. This is not like any other case. I mean, the way it usually works is you're indicted. You have no idea what the witness list is. You you get a bunch of discovery. You can guess who the witnesses are. I mean, some of the people you see the grand jury test, or you see whatever. You usually, by the way, don't get the grand jury testimony if you're on the defense side to like two, three weeks before trial. And that's about the time you get a witness list. And the witness list includes 84 names. The government ends up calling 20 of them. Um, I mean, 84 is even long. But, you know, in a typical case, they might put 30 names on the witness list, call 15 of them. And you don't have, you don't know early on. And it's certainly not like... I Actually, this is one spot. Ash, I agree with Aileen Cannon. You don't file that with the court. Uh, you, you know, sometimes you do, but it's very late in the game. But you you often just exchange that. So it's an interesting, uh, it was an interesting time where the DOJ was trying to do something outside the box. Trump is barred from contacting these witnesses though, right? <laughs> yes. Um, yes, he is. Um, you know, but whether that's going to be enforceable or how that's going to be enforced, I don't know. Now, obviously... If he, if he contacts someone and there's like evidence, like there's solid evidence that he's tampering with witnesses, sure, that could, they could supersede and add a charge, although that's going to delay things. Um, and, you know, or they could use that evidence at trial or potentially to show consciousness of guilt or something else. But, um, well, you know, I, I don't know whether that'll ever be proven. I think we need to be prepared that that's going to happen, right? I mean, he, Let's see. Let's just go back down memory lane. I mean, he intimidated Michael Cohen, you know, on Twitter. Um, he uh, was dangling pardons for other witnesses to to not testify. Um, he had, you know, some lackey call Cassidy Hutchinson on the slide to kind of, uh, you know, let her know that, you know, she doesn't really need to, she, she can just be silent or she can say that she doesn't remember. I forget what the, um, the instruction was like, you don't have to remember everything. Uh, yeah, it was really weird. So, you know, he, he is a serial witness tamperer, um, and justice obstructor. Uh, and so I guess, um, and in this case, I I think we can probably be confident that because I think the the court also has the power, right, to um, hold someone in contempt if they're doing things like that, even if they're they aren't actually charged with another crime. That's right. I mean, so you're when you uh, so when you're released on bond, there are conditions of release. If you violate the conditions of release, you usually end up back in front of the judge, and the judge. Uh, can modify your bond or do there's all sorts of powers that the judge has when you're violating the conditions of release because that's a kind of a separate power that the judge has over you without getting to the merits of the underlying case but obviously it, you know tampering with a witness potentially could be much greater than that i think you know one thing that is common amongst all the things you said is a lot of them are kind of 
I'll call them looks like witness tampering, but whether it's chargeable is a different thing. Like they're all things that will cause a lot of people on Twitter to say this looks like witness tampering, but like whether it actually something you charge, I don't know. Like the Cassidy Hutchinson thing and so on. Um, but yeah, I think that's, yeah, there's all sorts of ways there could be potential consequences, but I suspect that there won't be. In other words, I suspect my gut is what's likely to happen is there'll be some hand handed attempts to do whatever. And it won't really amount to much. No one's like people won't pick up the calls. Nothing's going to happen. Like the the statements will be vague enough, and it'll just sort of fall by the wayside. I could be wrong, and I and I don't know what way that cuts, whether it's good or bad. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. So. Asha, you are gone. You are out of the country. Yep. And uh, Warlord took it, took it, took that opportunity. He's like, now that Asha is not on the ball, not like focused not on, on the watch, my country. Not on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. You're not on the watch. <laughs> He's like, okay, I'm going to engage in like a mutiny mm-hmm. against Vladimir Putin. You have, maybe you should go on vacation more often. Yeah, that was some crazy stuff. Yeah, that was really something, right? Like, it looked like he's, like, booking it to Moscow. It's like, what's this guy going to do? I mean, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, so you get me Prigozhin. Um, You know, I've been watching on Twitter for a little while because I follow a lot of the uh, people who are reporting about the war in Ukraine. And he's been spouting off about Putin for a little while. So this, this little rumbling has been kind of brewing. And I think... Um, it's really been really interesting to to watch because people are like, yeah, you know, the, there's some there's some op happening here because there's no way that he would be so openly criticizing Putin. Like this is some kind of theater or or fake out or whatever, you know. And I I teach classes on information warfare and who's the best, the, the Russians. And you know, Prigozhin, P.S. Um, among the many things that he does, including uh, running a private mercenary group, um, the Wagner Group. Uh, he also runs the Internet Research Agency, which is the St. Petersburg Troll Farm. So, you know, in my class, we, you know, t- learn about the Internet Research Agency and how it functions and the Mueller indictment that, you know, charged them, et cetera. So um, he is, you know, the this whole idea of kind of creating narratives in the information space is something that both he and Putin are um, are good at. And so, you know, and you saw this through that through the weekend, right? Like you're seeing this back and forth and you're like, is it real? Like, can we really rely on what they're saying? And um, and then, you know, the secondary level was, you know, not even being able to verify, like, you know, what was actually happening. Like there. There, there was so much caution about even from like, um, you know, the the best news agencies because you didn't have um, reporters on the ground uh, because Putin's kicked, kicked them all out um, to be able to report accurately. And I think it's just a really interesting illustration of how much our perceptions of reality are shaped by this information space and it can be manipulated or whatever. And so the fact that in the in the end, he was like, I guess, marching on Moscow. I don't really understand what happened. So he's marching on Moscow. Then he was like, okay, no, I'll just go to Belarus. <laughs> and like went to Belarus and and was hanging out in witness protection. And now he's back out yelling at Putin. And Putin is really mad. 
Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know what to make of that either. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's almost like here is the best I could figure out from this or, and I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in this subject, but it seemed like either there's one of two things either for, and I think this is the more likely one that he thought that when, if he, you know, took this headquarters of the Southern army and then marched, you know, took some more cities and marched towards Moscow that it would cause elements within the Russian army to, uh, you know, rise up against Putin. Particularly, there's a couple of units that guard Moscow, and he thought that maybe they would agree to join in, and then that would be it. Like, if the guards kind of go mm-hmm. <laughs> flip and go on your side, then it's it's game over. And that, and he may have gotten word or sent, like, had communications and he heard word back that they're going to fight. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to marching 25,000 people up at Moscow and have, like, a bloody war that, a bloody battle in which most of my guys are going to die. And maybe we'll, maybe we won't, but it's just going to be bad for everybody. Um, alternatively, he just didn't, like, he didn't have a plan. Like, this, there's always, there's often times where people do really stupid things, like, they are very daring things, and they don't really have, like, a plan. I mean, I used to, this happens with criminals all the time. Like, they do, they have this great idea, like, I'm going to rob a bank or do something, and then they're like, okay, now what? Like, they've, they've robbed the bank, or they've defrauded somebody, or done something else evil, and they don't really know what to do next. So, I, I don't know which of them it is, but I mean, I thought it was interesting. It seemed like a little ill-conceived, almost like in the way that that January 6th was, right? Like, I mean, certainly the people, there was a plan there that was coming from people that were higher up. But a lot of people on the ground, like, it was not clear, like, what was their plan? Like, they were, like, going into the, into the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to think that, that there was a plan. I mean, it just seems like... <laughs> Bad idea genes to just suddenly be like, I'm turning yeah, around and I'm going to march on the Kremlin, you know, and like on a whim, that doesn't seem like something you would just do because you just are kind of mad, like road rage type of thing. Right. Um, the, you know, so it sounds like it. I would be more inclined to put some weight on the theory that, you know, there was a hope that Dewey, like this march would then somehow trigger other elements to to rise up, um, et cetera. Um, the negotiation to return to Belarus is also super odd because even if at that point you're like, okay, this is not a winning proposition for me. My, my plan did not work out as planned. Um, Belarus is not like, like a safe haven um, from Vladimir Putin because, you know, Lukashenko is his... Vladdy daddy and um <laughs> right am i missing something and you know putin is not you know he's not like a bygones guy right like if you cross him you basically get a choice of polonium or getting pushed out of a window so i'm just like how is this a safe like hey like what what is the point here yeah, I think this guy, yeah, my assumption is this guy's got 60 days to live or so. Although, if you're, I wonder though, on the other hand, so one thing I think part of the reason this guy chose Belarus is this guy's like a brutal Russian, like evil dude himself, right? I mean, he's the guy who's behind the internet research agency. He was like a Putin lackey. Wasn't he like Putin chef or something? So he, he owns of- a catering company called um, Concord uh, Catering. 
which I okay. guess I guess catered stuff for Putin. So yeah, he's known as Putin's chef because of, there you of go, his Putin catering chef. company. So there's a lot of stuff there. So he's not like somebody who's going to just like defect to Ukraine or Germany or something, right? Like we'd probably like prosecute him. <laughs> he'd probably be defected to the United States. He'd probably end up in federal prison. So he's probably oh, he's has wanted limited by the FBI options. already. Yeah. yeah. So my point is, he he's not like going someplace to defend. He has to go someplace. He can't go to the West. He can't go anywhere that's got like an extradition treaty with the United States or that would extradite him. So he had limited options, and I think his hope has got to be, and it's that Putin thinks he's better alive than dead because if he's dead, then he's like a murderer or mm-hmm. something, or there'll be like a head of the snake is killed. And there's I don't know. Or he's got I, I, some leverage. I mean, I don't know what that would be besides your, you know, whatever, 50,000 person private army. But um, I don't know, maybe information, something that, you know, is going to. But it's clearly not holding because basically they're both back out um, spouting at each other. The last I was on, I had turned on the news. So this uh, detente you will um had not is not is not holding um and it's interesting because i was talking with a colleague who um is a you know eastern europe russia expert and said that the vibes it has a very um berlin wall falling vibe like you know in that that era where things were happening very fast and you're you know you're the um the system is sort of crumbling and but uh you're not really sure um that was what she was likening it to um and i think precisely for that reason i do think it's really interesting that uh the us you know is sort of like kind of staying on the down low um and just sort of watching it all play out well that's a great analogy asha it's a really good one because i you you and i grew up we we knew that era mm-hmm. like we were we were there we were there we weren't in berlin but we were watching that unfold on the news and it seemed like out of nowhere like before then to i had always thought of the soviet union as this massive force of evil and arrival and yada 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 and then suddenly just like Crumbled. certain fall apart yeah it happened really quickly and here with putin i mean putin I, one one of my first reactions was like okay does this mean i'm not going to hear people on fox news praising putin or at cpac or all these right wingers like suddenly talking about how amazing putin is is trump gonna no longer hold up putin as the most amazing thing uh you know most amazing leader in the world is he gonna switch to xi or or whomever king jong-un or his new dictator friend um, I, I just think uh, that was my reaction to it because it's just, it seemed so, so sudden. And it seemed to me like there's a bubble that burst here where people realize, okay, he's not as strong as we thought. Right. And just to bring this full circle, Vladimir Putin was assigned to Dresden um, as a KGB officer when the Berlin Wall fell. And basically, they're holed up in this, you know, KGB office in East Germany, and everybody knows that's a KGB headquarters. Berlin Wall falls. It gets surrounded by, I guess, a mob or something with, you know, torches and pitchforks because it's finally like, you know, um, the, uh, you know, they, they're they're about to, they're free. And he calls to Moscow and asks, um, you know, where when are they sending like are you sending backup and basically there's like no response and and 
and then there's a, a communication that says Moscow's not coming. Like they're like you're on your own. And so he has like PTSD wow. from this and like that formative moment, um, you know, was like, you know, the ultimate humiliation, I guess, for him, for Mother Russia, like all this stuff. And it kind of drives this idea to to rebuild, you know, um, the Russian Empire um, or the Soviet Empire, you know, uh, because like of that um helplessness and humiliation that that he actually witnessed when the, the Berlin Wall fell. So it's actually interesting now that he is at the top as kind of a similar phenomenon is happening and I wonder if it's giving him like you know flashbacks. Wow, that's really interesting. And it's a reminder, I mean if you know what was happening during this crisis he's scrambling trying to get out of the country, right, for a period of time and wasn't able to do that. Very similar to that time when Gorbachev was trying to, you know, he he ended up, there was, he was, there was a coup mm -hmm. and, right, and everything else. So very interesting and I think a good explanation of maybe what he's thinking right now. It's got to be a very dark time for Vladimir Putin. Dark times. And I'll just add in one more thing, which is there was definitely a spike in FBI and CIA recruitment uh, following the fall of the Soviet Union because you had a period of uncertainty and you don't know what's going to happen. And at that point, you know, hey, like, doesn't look so bad to like, you know, cash in some secrets and and uh, make a life for yourself somewhere where you're not going to em get embroiled in like a civil war or, or killed by, you know, criminal thugs or whoever's taken over the country at that time. Um, and it's really interesting because, you know, on Twitter and I'm sure in a number of different uh, channels and fora, um, but I definitely saw the ad on Twitter, which is by the FBI in Russia and that's sort of like, give us the call, you know, and uh, and I, I, I'm betting um, that they're making some some good uh, you know recruitments right now and it's really important because some of those you know uh, post cold war recruitments that happened after during the fall of the berlin wall um and the fall of the soviet union and ended up being you know really critical for uh things that we discovered later like you know the illegals program that was happening here and and all of those stuff so um anyway so it's just really interesting to think about how this benefits us and our intelligence capabilities um uh and the icing on the cake is that it's at putin's expense so before we go I thought we could talk about boy state and girl state. Wait, what? Do you know this? No. What are you talking about? Okay. I feel like nobody knows about this. And this was such a big deal when I, I was growing up. I have no idea up. what you're talking about. So, I'm, like, what you? I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. So boy state and girl state are programs that are sponsored by the American Legion in every state. and 
basically it's a selective program between your junior and senior years. You go somewhere for a week, usually college campus. They assign you to a town and they also assign you to a political party. And the idea is to teach you how to like it, to teach you about government. So you run for office, you know, whether it's city council or um, state representative or state senator, or governor, or all of these different, lieutenant governor, all of these different offices um, and their Supreme Court justices. And, you know, you can, you basically form a government. And so you're, you're, you know, giving speeches, you're um, campaigning, you know, there's for each political party, there's a whole party, um, you know, infrastructure that's there. So you can be like the, whatever, the, the Ron McDaniel of, of whatever the party is. Um, and it's, uh, it's really fascinating and um, cool. I did Virginia Girl State when I was um, in, in high school. And do you know that famous photo of Bill Clinton shaking John F. Kennedy's hand? Of course. Hand? Yeah. So that is from, so when you go to boys' state or girl state and you run for senator, um, you know, each boys' state and girl state elects two senators, those senators get to go to boys' and girls' nation. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And then a part of going to boys' and girls' nation is you get to meet the president of the United States. And so that wow. picture of Bill Clinton shaking John F. Kennedy's hand, I believe, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, because I remember thinking about this when, when I learned it, um, is that he was at Boys Nation. That's amazing. I I had no idea what you're talking about. This is fascinating. I I feel like I missed. I feel like I missed out on a lot of things as a kid. But that's definitely one of them. That's really amazing. Well, I think, and I just wonder if it's just bigger in the. I mean, they definitely have it in all 50 states because my my son. And the reason I'm talking about this, my son is at Boy State right now. Oh um, wow! And while we were on this uh, podcast, he texted me to tell me that um, he won state rep. He's won an election for state representative and he has the nomination for state treasurer for his party. That's great. So he won the, he won the, he won his primary. So anyway, so that, that's what got me thinking about it. But there's also a great documentary called Boy State, which is about Texas Boy State. And it's hmm. actually fantastic. You should watch it. That's super cool. I, I did, um, I, I remember we did like, you know, we had different forms of debate. I was uh, the captain of the debate team in high school. And we did. Of we had, you were. <laughs> and we did student government uh, as well. Uh -huh. Or not student government. I'm sorry. Uh, student Congress was one of the forms of it where you would go and you had to like try to get elected and like you were members of Congress and all this. That was like one of the forms. I think I did that freshman year and went to state for student Congress before I switched to a different form of debate. And, but that's what reminded me a little bit of that, but it was very different. There you're trying to pass bills and, you know, it was like a form yeah. of debate or something. I did model Congress. Okay. So similar. Actually, I didn't do model Congress. I helped run model Congress, I think my freshman year in college for the high school students. Cause then we went and there were like all these like high school delegations. So I think that's what I did. Um, I did model UN in high school and mock trial. Um, I was a witness. I always like being a witness because I could like do my theatrical stuff. See, that's um, the part of the problem. So I was the mock trial coach at the for the University of Chicago undergrads, 
for a period of time when I was a federal prosecutor. And I'm like, oh, this can be super easy. I've tried a lot of cases. It's going to be very easy to be a mock trial coach. Like this, you know, very easy. It's not, it has nothing at all like a regular trial because the witnesses are all trying to help. Like they're, 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 uh, they have a side, like they're trying to, and, right, and then right, they, right. They, they're, they're trying to not, help make the case. Yeah. They're yeah. trying to throw the case for whoever's questioning them. And they didn't actually experience the stuff. So they basically are making it up and they, they slant the facts, even though they have a fact sheet, they're slanting. It's all about who can slant the facts in some way that throws off the other side and like helps themselves. So it's just like nothing to do with a real life trial at all and how a witness would actually be. So I'm like teaching him how to cross examine and it's just never worked out the way that I was bad. I was a bad mock trial coach because I was trying to teach real trial as opposed to mock trial. So I, well, I remember my, my starring, my star role in mock trial was um, a gum popping truck stop waitress. Oh, I could see that for you. 100%. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Yeah, it was really fun. That was a good, good, uh, good role for me. Um, Yeah. So yeah, fun times. Um, Check out, check out the documentary Boys Day. Wow. Very cool. We'll do. M S W Media.